we thank you for all your amazing grace on us. We thank you for your word, and we pray and we plead for your help, Lord Jesus, that you would open our hearts to what you have to say, that we would walk in obedience, not because we're trying to earn something with you because we cannot, but that submission is happening to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, reign in our hearts. Lord, help us to do what you say. Lord, I pray that it would not, the things that we do in obedience would not be begrudging, but it would be out of a heart of joy and delight because we are pleasing you. And so, Father, I pray for joy in our hearts, joy that just trusts in you, God. And so help us, Father, as we, we, we cling to you, but we know that it is you that we can draw near to and, and that you cling to us, Father. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, we have been in a series in the book of Hebrews, and so if you want to turn there right now, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. That's near the end of your Bibles. We're going to be continuing with where we've been going right through the text of Scripture, and we are heading into this really interesting and, may I say, difficult portion of the book. And so there will be quite a bit of explana explanation this morning, and uh, it will be challenging. And it will be theologically difficult at moments. But I would also say that those aspects will not be the most difficult things that you might wrestle with this morning. But I would offer that the more difficult things, potentially, for you to wrestle with would be something that happens within the text related to generosity. And I would argue that um, generosity is a, an important part of what it means to walk with God, and it is also a rather difficult thing for us as Americans, as um, Californians, as Orange County people, or Los Angeles County, where you live, it's difficult. And it's difficult for a number of reasons, but one of the major reasons that, that generosity can be difficult and um, challenging for us is because of uh, our love for something and a battle that's in our hearts. And that, that love that wages war with us is related to, to money, to stuff. And, and I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, as I, um, as I unpack this, and we will see that we will be looking to Jesus, but, but that, in light of seeing the, some of the difficult theology that happens in the midst of this, the, 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 the more difficult piece will be that practical piece of dealing with generosity, our generosity in particular. And so what I'd ask you to do this morning is that you would, you would do the work of of listening, and then when you go to kneel before God and ask God, Jesus, to help us, to help you, perhaps, with this issue of generosity. Now, 
Uh, now, I say that because um, um, that is what is going to come out as we, as we read the passage, okay? Now, this, this book has been all about um, showcasing and pushing forward Jesus, who is superior to everything else around, Moses and angels and everything. He is our high priest, and that's going to be unpacked here this morning. He comes from the order, the order of Melchizedek. What in the world does that mean? That's going to be a question in your mind as you read through the passage and, and, and hear that and, and hear it explained. But those are some of the things that will come out. And, one of the, and the, what I want you to see in light of generosity is to see three major things related to why we need to draw near to God, namely because God and God alone through Jesus saves and so we draw near to him, and the question is, well, how is it that he can save? And there's three things I'll highlight here, and you'll, they'll come out as we go forward. It'll be, well, number one, his eternity, eternality. Number two, his immense worth. And number three, his perfection. And I'll, and I'll rephrase and try to demonstrate it and show you and explain a lot, but there's going to be a lot of explaining as we read through the text, so... So listen to the word of God. Now I'm going to start in chapter 6, verse 20, because it just, like, it starts to come out. In verse 20, it says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on, your, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is going to get explained, and it's going to be defined in the passage, and I will try to help us um, understand those things. And there's going to be a, a lot of that as we go through this. It, then it goes on to say, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. I'm going to pause. That is so rich and probably confusing at first. Like, who in the world? I mean, we've heard his name come up over and over again. What is going on? The slaughter of the kings. Um, what is this? The order of Melchizedek, this guy who is named hardly at all in the Bible, and now we have him being highlighted here in Hebrews. In the book of Genesis, there is a, a time after Abraham is blessed by God and God has made promises to him, wonderful and glorious promises, and God keeps promises and it is wonderful. And Abraham begins to experience the blessing of God um, uh, in one sense that he actually is very wealthy. He has a lot of people working for him. He has a lot of animals. And as a result of that, he has a, a, um, a kinsman, he has a, his brother's son, a nephew, Lot. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard his name before, Lot. He is in his midst, and something starts to happen between the servants of Lot and the servants of Abraham. And it's one of those things where the land that they live in is not supporting both of their endeavors very well. And one group of workers gets really frustrated with the other groups, and they're having a lot of strife, the Bible says. They're fighting. 
over a lot of different things. It's really frustrating. It's a difficult time. I don't know if you have uh, worked in companies where maybe like you did, uh, you, you, you got some new workers all at once, like 10 new workers, or maybe your, your cubicle or whatever got moved to a new location, and um, you had to work out some details and some issues with some other people. And maybe, maybe some of your stuff was like given to them. They got the, you know, the new computers, you got the old, whatever was going on. And then you kind of had some issues when you go to the little coffee area. No, like none of you have ever faced that, right? Never been, like you've never, you ever been like frustrated? Like, you know, like, hey, the, uh, for whatever reason, that group of people, they know when the boss is bringing the food and it's all gone by the time you get there, but you don't know why because he texts all his friends before. I mean, all that stuff is happening, right? Or maybe it's family member stuff, and there's just things that are going on, and you guys are kind of at each other for whatever dynamics or issues are going. I mean, and it's difficult, right? Well, well, these, these are family members. This is Abraham. This is his nephew Lot. And they've got lots of property. They've got a whole lot of animals. And I, I'm not a farmer. I don't know a lot about that. But I imagine, you know, you don't want your, your beautiful goats being bred with their ugly goats. Or what, like whatever's going on, it's like frustrating. And they're fighting over it. And then this amazing thing happens. Uh, you read from the scripture. And you can read it on your own. I think it's really fascinating. That Abraham s- says to Lot, he says, Hey, you know what? This isn't, ha- this isn't going very well. And um, how about you go and you take that entire portion, that area over there. And we're going to take this portion over here. And he says, we shouldn't fight. We're kinsmen. We're related. And if we're, like, all together like that, really close, um, like, it's not going well. Like, we shouldn't fight. We're family. And so Lot goes his own way. And Abraham goes his own way. Now, life goes on, and Lot is doing his thing, and uh, in the midst of all, of all of that, there are these other people groups. And these people groups are not um, the same as Abraham and Lot. They, they worship different gods. It's all chaos and craziness. And they end up conquering Lot and his people, and they, they kidnap him and uh, a lot of other people. And so Abraham gets word of this, and he's going to be what would be called like a kinsman redeemer. He's a related person. going to go redeem, going to go get his family member. And he goes to war. He gets like almost 400 guys that are trained. 400, right? That's a, that's a lot. And they go, and they go hunt down these other kings that have taken these, these family members, and they conquer them. And then they get all of their stuff, and they take it. They take all their stuff. And then the scriptures say, and they got Lot, and it says they got the women, and everyone else. Could you imagine, like, when you read these brief words in the book of Genesis, it's kind of a horrific tale. Like, they stole the women and the kids, and then Abraham went and got them. it's, It's a brutal time. It was not pretty, but they were able to go rescue them and get them back. And then what happens is they go into this particular, this valley where um, um, Melchizedek shows up. And it says that he brought refreshment. He brought wine and bread. So after this really difficult time of battle and war, this season of war, he come, comes and refreshes them with this, this food and this drink. Bread and wine. <laughs> I don't know what you're craving after war, but I, probably, man, they, 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 needed, they needed that. And uh, they were blessed by Melchizedek. So that's the backstory that what goes on. 
Now listen to what it says about this person in chapter 7, verse 1. Again, hear it afresh after you've heard a little bit of the backstory. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, by the way, scholars say that's a shortened version of Jerusalem. It's his place of peace, right? Perhaps. Um, priest of the Most High God. Fascinating. Now we've talked about this a little bit before, but he's, this, he is uh, said to be a priest of the Most High God before the order of Aaron. Okay, now remember, like here is the time frame of Abraham and Melchizedek and the war and him meeting there, and this is this guy being called a, a priest of God Most High. You know, Moses and Aaron and the Levites aren't until over here, generations later, by the way, where we have the law and the Le Levitical priesthood that's doing the in charge of the sacrificial system, etc. They're way over here in history. And it says these words that are very important to kind of just see in the midst of this, this season in history. It says he's a priest of the Most High God. That is significant. In the world that they are living in, people are, you know, we would think of them as like polytheists. There's like many, many gods. Now, if you read different scholars, what you're going to find out, there's actually a technical aspect to the, religious, the religions of their day. It's called henotheism which is the idea that there's many gods among these people groups, but they have rankings and stronger gods in their sight. So to think about it properly, you have, you have to know that. So when it says that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, priest of the most high God, this is reserved for our God, Yahweh, the one true God. And so what the text is telling Hebrew people that would be, would be reading this or hearing this, they are associating Melchizedek with the one true God. Not just some God, not a God, like the God. It goes on. Priest of the Most High God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham uh, apportioned um, a tenth of a, well, excuse me, a tenth. I just, I'm going to, I jumbled that up. I'm stuttering a lot this morning. Verse 2. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Well, that's going to have to be explained. Because I know where your brain goes, because I know where my brain goes when I hear sentences like that. You think, Melchizedek must be an eternal dude. Like, without mother and father, what in the world is he talking about? Now, let's pause for a second. We're going to return to that and go back to this tenth portion. Abraham does something really fascinating in the midst of that as he, he gives no small amount of cash, brothers and sisters, because he has conquered not a king, but kings, plural, and there is a lot of loot, and he very graciously and easily, from what we can see, gives a tenth of all of that, just like that. Now, um, let's go back, now let's go back to the end and, and highlight what it says about this eternality, because this, this is one of the first things I want you to see about Jesus and how and why we should submit and draw near to him because he is the one who can actually save. He is a high priest that can actually do the work. 
And that's what Hebrews is screaming forward. He's comparing this guy to Jesus, and I'm going to show you how and why, and it kind of explains who he is and what this means and what it doesn't mean, okay? So we go back to verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Right? That sounds like Jesus, right? But resembling, it says resembling, that's important, the Son of God who continues a priest forever. So one of the first things we see about Jesus and, and we need to know about is his eternality, that he is a priest forever. Now let's go back to Melchizedek. It's not, the author is not saying that this guy was eternally existing. He's not saying that he's immortal. This is a guy. But in the ancient world um, and in the text of Scripture, we don't have a record of his mother, of his father, of his birth, nor his death. That's all it's saying. And then what he's doing for, he, for Hebrew reasoning is helping them see, oh, like, you know how, like, we don't know about his birth, we don't know about his mother and father? In the ancient world, they, they would say, you know, people were that without mother and father because they were illegitimate. But we just don't know. The, te- the scripture doesn't tell us. And they didn't know um, about his lineage. But the, at the heart of what he's saying is that Melchizedek is appointed by God as a priest, Whereas when we, when we read about the Levitical priests, they are appointed because of this reason. They have come from the right tribe. It is unlawful to be a priest if you do not come from the Levites. Did you know that? You cannot come from Judah and be a priest. That is the place of the kings are born out of that. And in fact, if you do that, and it has happened in Scripture, when you mess around and you try to be a priest, you're not a priest, you die. You die. It is unlawful. And God will deal with you. And so it had to be from this. And what he's saying to these people, they would know that. These Hebrew people, they're like, no, priests come from Aaron, from the Levites, you know. And uh, they're hearing, this guy's appointed by God. And it is God who appoints Jesus. That's really at at the heart of what he's saying. Now, this is rich in theology. This is hard You know, it is easy for people to just read through this this hard part of Scripture and be like, this guy's eternal? That's not what's happened. So so that's not what's happened. So he's he's resembling the Son of God, okay, who continues a priest forever. The point is, Jesus is a priest forever. And he's not saying that he's perpetually dying. You know, that the death of of Jesus on the cross was a historical event. It was a once-for-all thing that happened. But he's a priest forever. And we'll see as he unpacks the rest of this that, that the priests that were to come, the, one of the problems the priests had is that they die. Their work comes to an end. And they die. And then you need more priests to be born to do this work. And then they die. And now we have one, Jesus, who does not. Who can actually accomplish the work that a priest needs to do so that we can be saved. That is the idea. So that's one of the first things I want us to see is that uh, the eternality of God that we need to draw near. We should draw near to God, and we're going to h- highlight this whole generosity piece. Draw near to God because he can actually save, and there's reasons, there's ways how he does this. is because he is eternal, because he's a priest forever. Uh, number two is because he is worthy of all worship and praise. He is ex- immensely valuable. 
Listen to the scriptures in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Okay, now there's a couple of clues in the passage that really demonstrate how much a big deal uh, Melchizedek is, okay? When pe Hebrew people hear about a patriarch, oh my goodness, he is the presidente, he is the man, he is the king, he is, he is who we come from, he is the stuff, he's a patriarch. Now, listen to how he compares Abraham to the other person. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those, who, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a, com uh, a com commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, Though these also are descended from Abraham, okay, meaning like, like he's, there's going to be this, these children and children and children and eventually the Levites. But this man who does not have his descent from, uh, fr uh, from them received tithes from Abraham. Do you see what he's getting at? There, the, he, he is wrestling with the law that taught, you know, it's Levites that actually took a tenth a tithe, and Abraham was giving a tithe to this guy who wasn't from the Levitical priesthood. Like, that, that's what he's addressing here. And so, Levi, who received the priestly office, have commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his, uh, his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. He blessed Abraham who, who had the promises from God that the seed would come. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received from the mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who received tithes paid tithes through abraham for he was still in the for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when melchizedek met him total hebrew reasoning by the way it's different from the way we think you're like you don't usually think of your grandchildren in your presence doing something but in their minds they do so in some sense you know levi was tithing to to Melchizedek, how great is this? And that's why they use language like Jesus is at, in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What he's doing is he's elevating this to a huge deal so that they can see how massively important Jesus is as our priest. It's an incredibly rich theological issue that he's pointing forward. So, the second thing that we see is we see the, the, wor the immense worth of, of Jesus as high priest. He is worthy of our praise and our worship. And one of the things I need to, I want to address here is the whole issue of generosity for, for some moments um, because it's in the passage. It's, in the, it's a great time to kind of address it. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, um, why, why people aren't necessarily, and Christians 
are, aren't generous. And I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying that it, it's really easy to not be generous. But as Christians, we should be the most generous people of all. Here is Abraham giving a massive amount of loot um, over and just trusting God. And then he makes the case saying, hey, look, you know, look, look, even these, these, these people under the law, they were requiring a tenth from them. And we read that and we think, hey, that is only for the Old Testament. Which gets to one of the reasons why some people don't tithe or, or don't give. And here's the deal, brothers and sisters. The tenth is really a starting point. If Jesus has done so much more for us by accomplishing what he's done, then don't we even owe him more than the tenth? We owe him our entire lives and every aspect of our lives. And I say that in light of a culture that you and I live in where money is a radically big deal to us. In fact, it's a great test of where our heart is. Jesus himself says it. In Matthew chapter 6, listen to his words. Starting in verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Then he says these heartbreak wrenching words. Are you ready? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. I read these scriptures, guys, in light of a culture where two of our great gods are, number one, our children, and number two, our money. These are the, these are the great pillar gods in our culture. That, that it's almost the air we breathe, you know, in consumerism. You know, the three pillars of my culture, and it's, it's interwoven in me, in my brokenness, because I've grown up in it just as you have. We live in a world and, you know, um, where we, we as a culture, we, um, we don't eat to live, for example. We live to eat. You know, I mean, we, we don't, I mean, and on and on and on. We can do that with a lot of different things. I mean, those are some of the gods that are fiercely at us, you know. Those are the things that we wage war against. And, and, I, and I want you to know that, man, I can sympathize with you. I've wrestled with these same things that you have as well, and I bet you, uh, you and your wife, or if you're single, you yourself are, are going to go in a, an intense wrestling match, maybe hopefully this afternoon, as you wrestle with you and God related to the things like generosity and money in particular. Here we have the great patriarch with ease handing over this immense spoils, more money than I will ever have my entire life. It was massive, right? I mean, kings, plural, he defeated, he brings the loot, right? And he just gives a portion um, to this Melchizedek. And yet we know how difficult, I know how difficult it can be for us. I can sympathize with that. 
in a cult culture that's super expensive to live in and, and rents high. But let me ask you, here's some heart questions that you can ask yourself and test yourself as a couple as you guys can work through it. It's just make a listen and ask yourself, what percentage do I give to what? And the best way to do it is like, don't start with the plan, just start with what last month looked like. And then, and it will be revealing. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, because we are Christians, our hearts are to Jesus. And that means if, if, so if money is gripping you, if money is hard to let go of, then sit down, write it out, plead with God, and say, Lord, I, I don't want I, I don't want to serve money. I don't want to love money. And if we are, just, just repent and say, God, help me. And that doesn't mean it'll be easy tomorrow. Oh, all done, I'm just going to be super generous tomorrow. I mean, there could be a lot of stuff to kind of undo and fix. I mean, you might find out 50% of your income goes to entertainment. I, mean, I don't know. Perhaps. But we know that in our context, it is super hard. And we, and I'm saying this not, because you know, here's one of the accusations that people have. It's like, hey, the church just wants money. Right? That's one of the accusations. What, I don't owe God money. That was the Old Testament. Uh, church just wants my money. God just wants my money. My money's my money, or whatever it is. But here's the thing. I, we care about your heart. More than, we don't give a rip about, about your money. We care about your heart. Because when you stand before God, when we stand before God, what matters is being clean and washed by the blood of land and walking with him in obedience, even as it relates to our generosity. I think one of the great blessings I've seen in, in planting a church is the church planters that every one of them run into have been the most generous brothers and sisters I've ever met. It has been so profound. I remember a while back I was, uh, I was invited to go to a conference and, and it, was a church, it was a planter that paid for my airfare, my, my stay, my tickets, everything, most of my food. When I, 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 I didn't, when I first was starting and I was going to a conference, it was other planters that paid for me. When Becky and I set out to plant a church, we, um, some of you know this, some of you do not, we, we were going out and we knew our paycheck was stopping within like a month and a half, which was, I don't say that as a boast, I say that it was absolute terror. It was, it was, it was scary, but we, we believed and felt called and we wouldn't tell every planter to do that, but we, want, we knew that we needed to obey God in this and we knew that God provides. Now the scary thing is I have kids, I have a wife, I have a mortgage, I have a car payment at the time, and you know what, and God provided. And I'm not saying that that would, that would be your story, because sometimes it gets really scary, doesn't it, guys? And things just drop out, and you, you lose your job, and you wonder, God, what are we going to do with this? But here's what matters, is that we do not serve money, but we serve the living God. And he provides all of our needs, needs. And we can relinquish that just as easy as this great patriarch. And the whole issue here is to see how great he is and make a connection to Christ who is immensely of more value. And so if the Old Testament people were giving, how much more should Christians give who are seeing the blessings of the good news of the gospel invading the world around them? We owe God everything, our very lives. And I would argue this, 
unless, until we release money, we will not be willing or ready to release our lives. When the gospel tells us that actually we are to, that suffering comes, that Christians are willing to give their very lives for, for the gospel. We read on. One of the third things we will see is the perfect, uh, the perfect aspect of the Son, the perfection of the priesthood of the Son. It goes on it's in verse 11, it says this. Now, if perfection had been um, attainable through the Levitical priesthood, uh, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise from the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Now, it seems kind of confusing at first, but what he is saying is, I'll just read on and I'll explain. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What he's saying is, priests do not come from Judah. Priests come from the Levites, of the law. Kings come from Judah. Now, Jesus is a prophet, priest, king. He's the perfect man. Okay, no one else is prophet, priest, and king. He's born from the, the, the tribe of Judah, and what, he said, what the author is telling us here is this Melchizedek did not come from the line of the Levites. That's what he's saying. Um, and, and neither did Jesus. And the point is this, that this perfect priest came by God ordaining it. That's what he's saying. This becomes even more evident in verse 13, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement. You see, there it is. There's the legal requirement. And that might be new from you. You might have, I don't know where priests come from. Like those two tribes, that, that matters. That mattered to Jewish listeners too. They, they would know, they'd be keen to that. But we as Christians, we don't think about that. We just think, hey man, Jesus came, forgave me. I want to walk with him. I love him. And they have all this rich theology in the background. This becomes even more evident when Another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who, was, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. You see the perfection of Jesus. We need to draw near to God because he can actually save us, brothers and sisters. He is perfect when we are not. For it is written in verse 17, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of the weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. You know, the, the law doesn't make you repent. It just it shows you your sin. That's what it does. It, it will show you your imperfection. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We draw near to God. Draw near to God, brothers and sisters. Draw near to Jesus, the perfect, eternal priest. 
And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, meaning they were born into it. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and here it is, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of better covenant, of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the utmost. Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make um, intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Did you know that Jesus is innocent and pure and unstained and separated from sinners? He is perfect, brothers and sisters, perfect. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We've said it before, but remember, the priesthood would actually have to deal with their own sin before they would go into the Holy of Holies and deal with it for the people of God. And if they didn't deal with it properly, they were going to perish. They were going to die physically for mistake. Jesus is the spotless lamb. He is perfect, who is able to go in there and actually accomplish what was really just a shadow of what was to come. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, I told you in the beginning, like, this is, it's super rich. This particular section is super dense, and it's foreign to those that do not have a Hebrew background. And I told you to be a lot of explanation. But, I want, but what I really wanted to deal with here is not only the, the perfection of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus, the immense worth of Jesus, but for us to practically wrestle with the generosity piece, because that, man, that hits every single one of us. But let me tell you this, the perfect priest that was able for once for all to cover our sin also deals with our imperfection and our lack of generosity. Did you know that? You don't have to run off with, in guilt and shame and I don't know what to do and, and, and terror, but that God washes you clean even in the midst of you struggling with that. Or whatever it is. Maybe it's not that. Maybe that's not your thing. Maybe it's something else. But the perfect, eternal God, through Jesus, he washes you clean. He accomplishes once for all the thing that you could not accomplish on your own, namely dying on the cross and paying for your sin, brothers and sisters. I hope that you walk away today understanding that you have a perfect, eternal priest, Jesus. He doesn't perpetually die. It was handled historically once for all time, but he is a priest forever. He is not like a priest that loses his job because he dies it is handled and dealt with for, for us. Let's pray.